Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. In our last episode, we introduced you to the architect of our nation's first opioid court, Jeff Smith. Today, in part two of this series, we'll talk with the presiding judge over opioid court, the Honorable Craig Hanna, and his case managers, Brooke Kraus and Megan Carroll, all from the 8th Judicial District Court in Buffalo, New York. We'll also talk with Janet Gaskin, a caseworker from Save the Michaels of the World, a nationally known nonprofit and key collaborator with the opioid court. And finally, we hear from Kevin, a participant in the program. The opioid court they run and participate in is making a difference in Western New York by getting help for those who need it within 24 hours of incarceration and eliminating the window of opportunity to use between arrest and entry into drug court. Enjoy this episode. Judge Hanna, thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me today. Okay. So, first of all, tell us why opioid court and this topic in general is um, of such significance to you personally. You've got a personal story. Let's start there. Well, personally, I always would like to say I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for my extended family and community that really gave a damn about me before I gave a damn about myself. Um, I always had the church community. friends, family, that was always more concerned about my own addiction. Um, I'm in recovery, obviously. Right now, I'm 18 years um, cocaine-free. And I'm only that because of people kept staying on me, kept working on me, because I was more of a functioning addict. I went to school, I had a job, I did everything I was supposed to do, but every once in a while, you just fall off because you get hooked on something. And at some point, um, and I really thank my mother and my wife now, I always say, God sent me an angel, and that's why her name is Angela. They said they weren't going to deal with me anymore. Like, in the public, I was fine, but at home, I was a terror. Hmm. And they really made me get the help that I needed. Well, congratulations. Well, thank you. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about opioid court. And let's start by the foundation of drug court, because I think many people understand what drug courts are all about. Mm -hmm. So how does opioid court differ from drug court? Um, That's a very good question. We are a precursor, or more like a triage program, before drug court. A drug court is normally a post-disposition court. Our opioid intervention court is a predisposition court. So the second someone is arrested, we try to divert them to treatment within 24 hours, whether it's medically assisted, behavioral treatment, which is more like clinical, inpatient, outpatient, and group counseling. And we try to get them back on path. 
Our job is just to make sure we keep them stabilized so we can, they can actually make a more traditionally based drug court. Because we were finding out over the course of the last two or three years, a lot of our participants, and we call them participants, not defendants, because we want to instill hope in them. Mm-hmm. A lot of our participants were not making it to drug court because they were ODing before they had a chance to have their charges adjudicated. Outstanding. So um, drug courts, many of them go for a year, six mm-hmm. months to a year, I think it is, Yes, for the most part. Your court, how long does it go? How long are they under your supervision? Well, typically they should be out of our court within 90 days because in a misdemeanor, according to our state laws, they want a misdemeanor handled within 90 days. But obviously there's adjournments, there's other things that make it um, prolong a little bit. But our normal trajectory is for our participants to leave our court after intervention and stabilization and go into our, our normal drug court that we have here. Okay. So walk us through this day by day. So they're arrested. Take us from there. Okay. Let's say an individual's arrested. It doesn't have to be an opiate or drug-related charge. In the morning when everyone comes into our detention facility, there's always a health assessment. In the health assessment, there's two or three extra questions about whether or not you use opiates, whether or not you're under the influence of opiates, whether or not you OD'd, or if you were narcan you will be directed directly to our part instead of the normal arraignment part. At that time, one of our coordinators will actually do a further interview and then I'll go over the tenets of our program. The main tenet in our program is just to be honest. And if you're honest, we'll get you the help that you need. And that's why we call it a triage program because we liken it to an emergency room. When you go into an emergency room, you give every the information to the treating physicians and to the attendants that they need so they can make the proper assessment for you. So I have a lot of individuals that come here that's not actually appropriate, but we still keep them because once they're here, we can link them to ancillary services. Let's say they were um, addicted to cocaine as opposed to opiates. We can get them linked to treatment. We can get them job interviews. We can get them bus passes and tokens and transportation. And some of them we can get linked to insurance because, as you know, unless you have insurance, a lot of treatment agencies won't actually accept you. So, and those ancillary services are just so key to rebuilding their lives. Mm-hmm. You've probably witnessed how the big difference that that made in a short period of time with Definitely. some of your clients. Definitely. Just simple things like getting your driver's license, uh, getting custody or getting visitation with your children. Because we know you cannot handle recovery alone. You need a mountain. You need a village of people to help you accomplish this. As you liken this to climbing a mountain, you don't climb a mountain by yourself. You need other people with expertise and skills and, let's say, tools to give you the tools that you need to be successful. And that's what our program is. We want to give them the tools to be um, be successful in their initial path to recovery. So how is it possible that you're able to have the necessary, dedicate the necessary resources to meet with these people every single day? They're they're coming in every day. I mean, in a typical drug court, they see the judge, go before the judge, what, every two weeks? Is that about right? Um, Two weeks if they're doing well. They may Mm -hmm. come every week if they're doing bad, but you're right, every two weeks. Okay. So this is pretty intense. It is, but I enjoy it because I think it's our mission. Our mission Mm -hmm. is to help people. And Mm -hmm. I think, and I'm not trying to be disparaging, but we don't deserve to be in these jobs if we don't make sure that when people leave out of our courtrooms, they're not better when they come in. And the only way to deal with this substance, because this substance is a monster. It's not like other substances where you can just phase it in and out of your life. This has such a pull on an individual that you can be clean for 20 years. But when that pull comes back, because they said a hit of heroin is like for a Christian to be meeting Jesus. And how do you tell someone they can never do that again when it's the most awesome experience they ever had in their life? 
So this is something that we have to put eyes on them every day. We have to make sure they're in counseling and going through their group therapy every day. We have to make sure if they're doing medically assisted treatment that they're getting their dose every day. So we stay on almost every asset or aspect of their life to make sure that they're on their path of recovery. And I think it's becoming upon us to be the custodians of each other. Because if we want to be honest, someone helped us on our path or we wouldn't be sitting in our positions or in these seats today. What happens when they relapse? Relapse is a normal part of recovery, and I know a lot of people don't like to hear that, but relapse doesn't mean the person has failed. I look at it as a failure on us. We're not treating the program right. We have to reassess the treatment path that we gave them and change the parameters because I always say we don't throw the baby out of the bathwater. If they relapse, we just change the treatment protocol. Some people are not ready to be in the community, as we discussed earlier. They need to be taken outside of the community because they don't have the tools or they're not strong enough to avoid certain people, places, and things. So sometimes they need a little extra help. I look at this job as like being a parent. Like I was a knucklehead kid, so my mother had to give me extra attention. But some of my older brothers, they were someone she could be laissez-faire with because they did everything they were supposed to do. And I look at this the same way. Some individuals, you have to really be very stern. And as you probably saw, I might talk to them for 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And we talk about everything, not just recovery. I just want to know what's going on and peer into their lives because I look at myself as their coach, you know. Mm-hmm. And others you may be able to talk to for two minutes because they got everything squared away. And you're just checking in with you to make sure that they're not high or they don't have any other things. Because I don't think you can really get that rapport unless you first break down the barriers between us and they realize that I'm no better than them. And the only difference between me and them is time. And I have 18 years clean. And when they have 18 years clean, then they can accomplish some amazing things as well. So with the prevalence of drug courts now across our country, I think communities have kind of bought in, for the most part, to the mm-hmm. concept of trading these charges, putting mm-hmm. them that you're up on and that are being held against you for recovery. And you finish this, you do this, and we'll do this. Really simple. Simple math on that. Um, how is the your community responding to this, I'll call it touchy-feely approach. Mm-hmm. I get, I guess I get good and bad responses. Uh, a lot of, I say, well, maybe it's maybe more 60% more negative. And I think it's really coming upon us to educate the community. They look at it just like we were like a um, hug-a-thug court or just patting people on the back when they did something wrong. But they don't see the whole, or they're not seeing the forest for the tree. They're just only looking at the small issue that they committed some petty crime. But the only way you keep them from committing these petty crimes, let's say like vagrancy, petty larceny, or um, loitering, or you know just um, begging for money or something, the only reason we, only way we can really come stop them from doing that is arming them with the tools of success and recovery that they won't keep coming in here. I don't think you can lock up an addiction. I think we made that mistake, especially in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and even early 90s, where we have a whole community of young people taken away from their family. You cannot lock up an addiction. We have to treat this as what it is. It's an illness. And when any other illness, people go to the doctor and seek the help for that they need. So we have to take the sting and the stigma away from our individuals and let them know that they're here because they need help, and we're here to help them. Another negative comment I get, and I'm glad you brought that up, is, why didn't we do this with crack cocaine? Mm-hmm. You know, I get that sure. almost everywhere I go. Like when crack cocaine and they thought it was an inner city problem, um, you guys didn't have all this. You were just locking people up. Now the affluent mm-hmm. white people are 
you yes. know, they, they have this, this epidemic is on them, and now you're responding. I, yes. mean, that's, I get that's that almost everywhere I yeah. go, every night, yeah. when, you know, there's always someone in a crowd, and I welcome that question. Mm-hmm. And, and I would say, well, you're right. You're absolutely right. We learned from our mistake. So since we learn from our mistake that you can't lock people up, then why would you want us to repeat it? You know, yeah. We learned from the 60s, 70s, and 80s when our soldiers were coming back from the war or when latchkey kids were left to defend, uh, fend for themselves in the 70s and 80s and they were doing things. We learned from that. So now that we had that knowledge from the past, we're not going to repeat it. So we're going to make sure our individuals get the help that they need. So um, one of the unique things about your program that Jeff made real clear, uh, Jeff Smith, in, in an earlier segment of this podcast, was that you've got this window of opportunity after they've been arrested for some violation. And it's just incumbent upon you to uh, respond right there, to help. You have that window. It's a very short window. Mm-hmm. And if you wait until they're the natural system, they're arraigned through that, et cetera, um, you lose them. And oftentimes you did. Many people died that way in that That's window. Correct. So can you comment to that? Saving well, I lives. think the best part of this, and I know it sounds kind of corny, is that we just want them to be here tomorrow. We want them to be able to be involved in their family lives, reconnect those linkages that they burnt, those bridges over the years. We want them to be here for somebody's birthday, someone's anniversary. We just want them to be around. And the way you do that is when we have them at that critical juncture at arraignment where everyone is thinking kind of clearly, because I don't want to be here again. Mm -hmm. No one wants to be in jail. Mm -hmm. And while we have that, we give them an option. And I know Mr. Smith told you it's an option because this program is strictly voluntary because it's at the inception. They're innocent. Right now, all they did is get arrested. They just stand accused. But as we know, in our country, thank God, you know, you're innocent until proven guilty. And we make sure we give them the option that recovery is a good path for them to be on. And we have all the tools here ready for you. And if you ask for them, we're here for you. You've had the program up and rolling now for nine months. Mm -hmm. How do you measure success? Lives. We had one individual in our program that that succumbed from relapse, and he, he died. Um, but it's something that we learn from. He actually successfully completed his intervention, and I don't know if we discussed this before, because of the nature of his charge, it was under one of the Good Samaritan laws, so his underlying criminal charge got dismissed. So there was no no contact for him to continue coming to court because his underlying criminal charge was over. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I guess that's a testament of having us being with him every day. Once he stopped being with us every day, once he um, stopped being around all this, and I, I look at as, as his cheerleaders and coaches. The support system. Yeah, he went back to what he was doing. Mm. And then even though his girlfriend was still here, she was giving us updates on how she wasn't hanging out with him anymore because he kind of backslid. So I always gave her an encouraging word and, and said, just ask him to come in. We're always here for him. And then maybe a month or two later, he, he died of an overdose. Mm. That's depressing. But the beauty of it is that, as you see in the pamphlet, she's actually quoted. I won't use her name. But she's the quote in the in the pamphlet that we give out is that once you think you got this thing licked, you know, that's when it comes back like a monster and hits you like a sledgehammer. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. And she stayed positive even in that negative uh, because she realized that the tools were here, but you definitely have to be ready for help. No one can make you ready. You have to make yourself ready. Hmm. That's quite a quote. Hmm. Powerful. So what advice, Judge? would you give to other communities that may be contemplating implementing this type of program? The first thing I would say, you already got the tools to do it. I know it sounds like it's too much or was voluminous, but it's not. All it is is patience. And if you're a parent, and I think every good judge or the best judge will be a parent. 
Because a parent realized that you have to deal with people with love and understanding. Our job is not just to throw people away. It's to make sure that they learn from their mistake and make sure we get them better tools and resources so they can be more productive. If you have a drug court in your jurisdiction, you already got the tools for it. We borrow from our drug court staff. As you saw today, that um, I believe the three people in here are already employees here, but they're, we beg, I mean, what do you, what do you call it, um, Rob and Peter, PayPal or something mm, like that? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So we just use our existing staff, but it just makes the calendar a little prolonged and we do a little extra work. But I believe we need to because if you put time and you invest in people, you'll see the measurable outcome in the end. And as you know, our measurable outcome is that they're alive and breathing so they can be here to share with their families within a year. Okay. Was budget budget an issue at all? Budget normally is an issue. We do have a BCA grant where that pays for research. But mm-hmm. our actual budget, because everyone is so excited about being involved in this, we have a lot of staff here that's on loan from other agencies. Mm-hmm. Ms. Krause is here from Horizon Human Services. Mm-hmm. Um, Ms. Carroll's here from the University of Buffalo. As you know, Jeff is in five places at once. Mm-hmm. Everyone wants to be involved in something that they believe is help saving lives. So I believe every jurisdiction has the resources. And as you know, you just need everyone to collaborate, come together, because each person can provide something different to us. And and that's what's been happening. I'm even glad that we met you. A couple of ideas you brought today that we're going to try to incorporate in our jurisdiction. And that's our goal. That's my dream is that we want to make this a cookie cutter, that someone can see what we're doing and our court can travel. They can take what we're doing, put it in their jurisdiction, and make sure we can be beneficial to more people than we are just here. Outstanding. So you've had your budget, in fact, and the plan for this, the three-year plan, uh, projected 200 people would make it through the program. Grand Mm -hmm. total, over Mm -hmm. three years. Mm -hmm. And now you're nine months into the program, Mm -hmm. and you've already hit that goal. Yes. Exceeded that goal, I should say. Is there one one, uh, success story that stands out that you'd like to share with us? Yes. One gentleman, and again, I, I won't say his name, he, he really impressed me because I thought I lost him. And again, I look at it as our failure to connect with individuals as opposed to them falling off. Mm-hmm. Somehow I wasn't able to keep him in. So when he came back on a warrant about, let's say he went out on the warrant in, October, in August and he came back recently, I was very concerned about releasing him because I thought he was just going to go back. And the only reason why he was here is because he got picked up. But he promised me he was clean. He promised me he learned from all the things that he was here. But I did tell him not to get ahead of yourself, that we had to check you back into treatment. And he said he's been living right. He wanted to prove me. I didn't believe him. I released him. He went and got taxed, came back in with his papers. He's been going to treatment for the last five or six months. He's been using all the tools, recovery tools that we gave him. But I said, then why didn't you just tell us? And his reason was that he was listening to me and he was home taking care of his mother. And I was like, well, I'm glad I would listen to you and let you leave. Because typically when someone doesn't come to court for six months, they don't walk out of here. But he felt that he needed to help his mother, and that was more important than coming back. But he was still going to his group meetings. And I said, well, then the the takeaway from this, I told the young man, is that all you had to do was communicate with us. Because we would have been here for you even more. But and I guess that's the whole tenet of this. This is about second chances. And in recovery, it might be about 20th chances. You know, on that 20th time, even though they might have broke your heart and failed you 20 times, the 21st time may be the time that they're going to be successful. So I would just um, tell all your viewers or all your listeners to, if you do have any instances of this, because it's affecting a cross-section of society, they're going to break your heart. They're going to let you down. They're going to do things that you don't like. Never lose faith. Always show them love and courtesy. Because on that one day when you think they're not listening, 
It's the day they're going to listen and lead by your example, and then they're going to come and accept all the things you've been trying to give them, and you're going to be so happy and proud of them. Any final thoughts? The only thing I would like to say in conclusion is that um, I am so proud of what you're doing. I'm so proud of the mission that you've taken, and uh, my heart goes out to you and your family for all the efforts that you're doing and the, the honor and the memory of your son. And I hope other individuals can take on that mantle to assist you. And we're here if anything that you need. Please don't hesitate to call on us as well. Thank you, Judge Hanna. Yeah, thank you. Okay. To get a sense for a typical day in Judge Hanna's court, I sat down with some of his case managers. I'm joined now by Brooke Krause, who's a case manager for the opioid court, and Megan Carroll, who's also a case manager here at the opioid court in Buffalo, New York. So let's talk about a day in the life. What's, what's a day in your lives here at the opioid court? What's it like? Can you describe that for um, us? Every day we see um, our defendants come in. We talk about their day, make sure they're going to group. We highlight any positive. We highlight what they can change. Um, so it's really just checking in with them, making sure that they're doing you know the best that they can be doing at that time. So every single day. And so they've just come in. They've When they're new to the program, they're really just in the just first few, in some cases, hours of sobriety, right? Yes. yes. So it's got to be pretty challenging um, uh, for you, for your jobs, kind of understanding where they are, where they're coming from, and what they need in terms of support. How do you do that? I really just listen to what they're telling me. A lot of them, you go over the options. Um, you show that we're really here to be more their cheerleaders and help them through this. Participants select their medication-assisted treatment program of choice, either Suboxone, Vivitrol, or Methadone. If they want Methadone, Suboxone, inpatient, or if they just want time to kind of start counseling and figure out different options down the road. So we just lay it out for them, and they know kind of once we approach them, you know, they always, the first question is, am I getting out of jail? So it's kind of, I have to spin it on them and say, you know, we're here to help. It's not, you know, if you get out, what are you going to go do? That's so important right now. So it's really just kind of starting that rapport with them right from meeting them and not just, you know, saying, oh, you do 10 bags a day, you're going here. We just kind of start that, you know, building that relationship right off the start. And your role, Megan, would be what? So I do case management, so I help them with anything that um, might prevent them from continuing treatment. So maybe, um, for example, transportation is a hard, mm. a hard barrier for a lot of people, so I help connect them with um, transportation through their insurance. Um, if they need help applying for social services, I can help with that. Um, we apply for... Um, subsidized housing or apply for halfway housing if people want to. So anything that's kind of fill, helping to fill in the gaps to continue their treatment. Every night at 8 p.m., all program participants call Megan to check in. And then I also do the 8 p.m. curfew call. So they'll call me at 8 p.m. Wow. And let me know. You're busy at 8 o'clock yeah. every night, huh? <laughs> yeah. It gets pretty. My phone blows up for like 30 minutes and then huh. it kind of slows down. Because you've got what right now? You've got 65 people, I think, today that came. Um, so how many people do you have in the program right now? Well, that are daily reporters, I get about 25 25, calls. okay. Mm -hmm. um, that can come and go depending on people that return on more and things like that. Joining me now is Janet Gaskin, who is a case manager at Save the Michaels of the World. 
So, Janet, welcome. Hi, thank you. Janet and Save the Michaels of the World support the opioid court by helping get participants into treatment and tracking them down when they go missing. So, Janet, you're very involved in Judge Hanna's court and working with some of his, the defendants that he's helping along. Mm -hmm. So tell us about that role. Well, it's varied. Um, Sometimes um, these kids with addiction will will not call in to Judge Hanna, will miss curfew, will not report as they're supposed to. And Judge Hanna, unfortunately, at that point, sometimes will issue a warrant for them. Um, and sometimes they're using, sometimes they're just running, sometimes it's, it's whatever reason you can imagine. Um, but I built enough of a relationship with them that they usually reach out to me and they say I'm in trouble. And so I'll go scoop them up and uh, we'll come down to see Judge Hanna together and um, start over. To get the perspective from a program participant, I talked to Kevin. I'm here with Kevin, who is a member of Judge Hanna's program. And Kevin, you just entered into the program. So tell us a little bit about what brought you to this point and what brought you to the program. Um, oh, yeah. I've been, uh, I was using uh, heroin since I was 19. Um, I'm you, 25. You're 25 today. Okay. Um, yeah, my birthday's in July. So I'm, I was struggling for a long time. This is my third treatment court. The first two were unsuccessful. Um, I really didn't have any desire to stop using. Um, and, uh, basically it took a long time to like work through it and like have like my addiction run its course to the point where I wanted to change. Cause I, you know what I mean? You don't want to, if you don't want to change, then you're not, you know, you have to have the desire first to, to want to do something different. So the other two courts that you were in were typical drug court. Yeah. And now you're in the opioid right. um, intervention court. Right. And this court is the first time I've, it's obviously the first time I've been in an opiate court. Um, also, they start, I've been on methadone. Um, and that's, a bit, I was Suboxone previously, but now opiate court linked me with methadone, and I've found methadone way more successful for me. So one of uh, the judge's defendants we just spoke to, his yes. name's Kevin. Yes. And you've got a relationship with Kevin, you're helping him through this process. Mm -hmm. Any comments on that? Um, Kevin's worked so incredibly hard um, the past past many, many months. Um, Judge Hannah has showed him compassion, um, taught him honesty. Um, Kevin is one that I have brought back here a couple of times to Judge Hannah. Um, So by brought back here, you mean you've kind of had to track him down because he's disappeared for spells. Yes, he will. He will run and hide, um, and he, he will reach out. And he'll give me an area in the city where he is. He doesn't always like to tell me right where he is, um, but then we'll I'll find him and we'll talk. And you know, he trusts me enough to bring him in here, knowing that um, Judge Hannah is going to impose what's in Kevin's best interest. Um, one time that was back to jail for a couple of days. Um, most times it's back to treatment and, and work with Save the Michaels and stay on track. Today, in the second of our two-part series, we talked with the presiding judge of the opioid court, the Honorable Craig Hanna, and his case managers, Brooke Krause and Megan Carroll, all from the 8th Judicial District Court in Buffalo, New York. We also talked with Janet Gaskin, a caseworker from Save the Michaels of the World, a nationally known nonprofit and key collaborator with the opioid court. And finally, we heard from Kevin, a participant in the program. The opioid court they run and participate in is making a difference in western New York. 
by getting the help for those who need it within 24 hours of incarceration and eliminating the window of opportunity to use between arrest and entry into drug court. The opioid court is truly making a difference in the opioid epidemic in western New York. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.